Many years ago, there was a, a woman who was despondent. She was in despair and her heart was broken because her husband had recently left their house and uh, he was pursuing things and, and doing his own uh, really fleshly desires. And so she decided that she was going to get away on a little trip and uh, her and a handful of her girlfriends decided they were going to uh, go to the beach. And so they were there walking the beach one morning when a bottle appeared from the water, just kind of washed up on shore. She picked it up, popped the cork, and all at once there was a genie that appeared out of the bottle. Uh, she was a little taken back by it, but he said, oh my goodness, you have freed me from the demands of life, and I've been in captivity for so long, I would be pleased to grant you three wishes. And she was taken back by it, and she thought, well, what? You're going to grant me three wishes? He said, yes, but here's the deal. There, there is a little bit of a catch with it. If I grant you something, your mate gets double whatever, whatever you wish for. And she was like, I, no, I, can't, I can't do that, because I'm like... I." She's like, there's just this stuff going on with my husband. He goes, well, it's your choice, but I'll, I'll grant you three. She goes, okay, I'll, I'll go ahead and take it. She goes, give me a million dollars. And all at once, she had a million dollars. The problem was, in a far distant place, her husband instantly had $2 million sitting right before him. He must have been stunned, right? So she then thought about it and was a little bit perplexed. But she thought, okay, what? I don't know that I need anything else. I've got a million dollars. What else do I need? She said, okay, I tell you what, give me the nicest car on the planet. And all at once, she had the nicest car on the planet. But again, miles and miles away, all at once, her husband had two of the nicest cars on the planet. Now, he was probably living the dream as to what she trying to contemplate what her third would, wish would be. And then all at once, she said, okay, so you're telling me that right now, whatever I ask for, my husband gets double that? And he said, that's correct. She said, okay, I know exactly what my third wish is going to be. Okay, what is it? She said, I want you to scare me half to death. <laughs> now, if you laughed at that, this message is for you. And the reason why is because it's talking about not repaying evil for evil, okay? And that's what Paul is writing to the church of Rome about. So if you have a Bible, turn me to Romans chapter 12. Um, Today, we're going to be in a couple of different places. Uh, we're going to look at a variety of verses, and we're going to look at the words that Paul has to say um, to Rome. We're going to look at uh, the words that Jesus said uh, about this issue, and then we're also going to look at the words that Peter said about this issue. So we're going to be in a variety of places. We're going to be here in a few moments uh, in Romans chapter 12. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 5, and we're also going to be in 1 Peter um, chapter 2. And so I encourage you, so just kind of stick with me, um, and we're going to hop into Romans chapter 12, uh, verses 14 through 21. Last week, Cody, um, our Edgewood campus pastor, covered verses 14, 15, 16, and we're going to pick up in verse 17 in a second. But just for context, I wanted you to kind of see a little bit of all of this. Last week, verse 14 says, bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse them. And he didn't spend a whole lot of time on it. Matter of fact, in his message, he said, hey, we're going to talk about this more next week. And so what Paul is saying is, he goes, look, I want you to have love that's genuine. I want you to abhor what is evil. I want you to cling to what is good. And he is encouraging the church of Rome to live a life of fullness. Uh, probably my favorite line from Cody's message last week uh, was that we are to be one buttock Christians. Um, if you have no idea what I'm talking about, then you need to go watch it online. He did a fantastic job of just exploring this text. And it was really encouraging to me. And 
what he basically even reminded us in verse 15 and 16, how we're to rejoice with those who rejoice and we're to weep those who weep. And we're to live in harmony with one another. And we're not to be haughty or proud, but we're to associate with the lowly. And when I think about that, we're to be unified. We're not to despise others. I think about James 2, that we're, uh, we should have for, uh, favoritism forbidden in our lives. We should honor everyone, right? Uh, that we should never be wise in our own sight. And when I think about this idea, it, it reminds me of just what the body of Christ does, right? If, if you have one part that rejoices, you rejoice. You have a part that suffers, you, 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 you suffer together. And I can think even in the context of just the last week or so. Um, for those of you that weren't here a few weeks ago, um, our elders shared with our body that uh, beginning in July, they're, they're giving me as our, our, our pastor a time to get away for a couple of months. And it's a sabbatical. And I've, in, I've received several just encouraging messages that have really just greatly increased my love for the bride here. And, and also like even today, I, I got a, a, a card from some friends and a gift. It was just like a blessing. It just it, like they're rejoicing with me, and it's really cool to hear the kind words and uh, and so many people saying that. But also this morning, I set an alarm because I wanted to send uh, a friend to uh, a text to, to a friend that recently has suffered great loss. And 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 this Father's Day weekend, um, we love her and her sister and her mother, and they're they're experiencing some really difficult things today with the absence of their father and. It's just a reminder that, hey, we are to rejoice and we are, we are to, to mourn together. And, and that's what the body of Christ does. And that's, that's what Paul is encouraging the church of Rome to be about. I think in a lot of ways, it's what he writes to the church of Galatia when he says these words in chapter 6, verses 2 and 3. He says, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something, when he is nothing, he deceives himself. Paul's language continually it says, hey, don't be haughty or proud, but associate with the lowly. You just continue to see this language where Paul just says, hey, look, remember who it is that gives and sustains your life and who gives and, and ultimately uh, allows you to experience grace in our life. And so he goes, hey, be careful to bear one of those burdens. And then he says that word to the Galatians, and so fulfill the law of Christ. Now, you might wonder, well, what is the law of Christ? Because a lot of us have heard about the law. The law was the Old Testament law that was given uh, by God to Moses on Mount Sinai. It was ultimately 10, or 10 commandments and then 613 commands that the Jewish people lived by. And what's interesting, Paul doesn't say, hey, and live by the old law. What does he say? He goes, I want you to live and fulfill the law of Christ, which refers to really two things. One is that you would love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. So you would love God. And the second is that you would love your neighbor as yourself. And that's really what Paul says, hey, that's what we should be about. And I think that's what he means in verse 17 of Romans 12 when he says, repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. Now, this is really difficult. It was a really difficult concept for the Jews in that day, for the Church of Rome and the Gentiles that would have been living there. Friends, I think it's very difficult for Americans in this day and age. It's a very difficult text for me. And so when we look at this idea, though, of repaying no one evil for evil, I think it is important to, to really get the context of what all this means. And I can't help but think about what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5. So if you have your Bibles, you can certainly turn there with me. Uh, Jesus says multiple, uh, multiple things about this idea. And uh, he begins really early 
in his sermon on the mount. Now, the Sermon on the Mount was when he was on the Mount of Olives and he was gathered around uh, potentially thousands of people listening to him preach a sermon, uh, which is the longest recorded sermon in all of our Bible in Matthew chapter 5, and it goes through chapter 7. But it's interesting because in Matthew chapter 5, verses 9 through 12, he says this. After uh, many blessed things he says, he says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Now, there's two things that when I look at, I think are really important. One, he said, blessed are the peacemakers. It's interesting because he didn't use the word peace fakers. He said peacemakers. And he also said, they shall be called sons of God, which is the idea and emblematic of that if you are a follower of Christ and you would call yourself a son or a daughter of God, you are called to the ministry of peacemaking. Now, I think many of us, we grew up in homes where we were peace fakers, um, and we would withdraw, and we wouldn't talk about challenges, and uh, we wouldn't oftentimes circle back around and find solutions or seek forgiveness. It was just easier to pretend the problem didn't exist. Or in some ways, we would think that, that forgiveness was, we just didn't mention again, and we just kind of kept pressing forward. I would say several of us, we probably grew up in, in homes, maybe that was resembled that, or maybe you were uh, really emblematic of a different lifestyle, and that was that you had conflict. Typically, a lot of us would look at a couple of different ways that we grew up. We would either have the, the, the flight mentality, which we would run from problems, or you had the fight mentality, which you would say, hey, we're going to brawl, duke it out until we find a solution. And that was the fight mentality. That oftentimes even exists in our home. But listen, I think what God desires for us to do is to be peacemakers. Now, when you think about the idea of a peacemaker, The word there literally means to make peace or to live in unity or harmony with one another. The idea is that when conflict does arise or when you have difficult things, that you should be a minister of reconciliation. Ultimately, that is the goal of every believer, that because Christ has reconciled us to God through his death on the cross, we too are to be living examples. That is, in many ways, our spiritual act of worship. And as we are living testimony of that, we are to reconcile others to God in the way we live our lives. So he says, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Sons of God are ministers of reconciliation. He goes on and he expresses it this way. He said, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Jesus says, hey, blessed are you when you endure trials. Blessed are you when people say malicious things about you. Blessed are you when you're confronted. And he says, for righteousness' sake. So namely, hey, blessed are you when you live a life faithfully to God as a minister of reconciliation and other people despise it. Other people reject it. Other people say malicious and harmful things about you or they accuse you or they make fun of you. He goes, hey, praise God. He goes, you're in good company. The prophets were rejected. The prophets were um, reviled. He goes, it is a blessing when you experience that because great is your reward in heaven. So Jesus is very clear that we are to repay no one evil for evil, but we should seek to do good in the eyes of those around us. How do we do that? 
Well, he continues this. He doesn't just leave it there in the Sermon on the Mount. He continues after a variety of different things. He picks it up later in this message around retaliation and around loving even your enemies. But look at Matthew chapter 5, verse 38. Jesus says, well, you've heard that it's said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And Jesus does a throwback to Exodus. And what he does is he says, I'm saying to you, hey, don't resist the evil one. Uh, but if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, hey, let, you, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forced you to go one mile, hey, go two miles with him. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. So Jesus takes this Old Testament principle that you would find in Exodus, where if you were to kill someone's sheep, you would get four. Or if you were to kill someone's oxen, you would get five. Or if you were to harm someone's family, you would have to avenge their blood with the death of someone else. He goes, it was an eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. He goes, it was very, very clear. You, you had blood to avenge, you would avenge it with blood. He goes, if it was an eye, it was an eye. If it was a tooth, it was a tooth. Jesus was saying, hey, look, there's something different about the kingdom principles that I'm teaching. He goes, yes, the law, if you remember it, it clearly spelled out that if you harm somebody's donkey, you're to replace it with another donkey or two or three. But he goes, in the kingdom of God, when you're to be a peacemaker, he goes, there's a different way of living. The different way of living is a new system. It's the law of Christ. It is to love your neighbor the way you desire to be loved. That's the difference. Jesus goes, I want you to understand the, the Old Testament concept, and then I want to give you the practical way of living it out in the kingdom now. And in, in the way that a believer should live it out. And he goes, yeah, it used to be an eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. But he goes, now they sue you and they want your tunic. He goes, give them your cloak. They slap you across the face. He goes, turn them the other side. Now, I don't know about you, but that seems a little bit difficult, right? Um, it almost seems a little countercultural. Matter of fact, if you continue down to verse 43, Jesus builds on this. He says, hey, you've also heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, a Jewish principle. Hey, yeah, love those who are lovable, but hate your enemy. But then Jesus expands it. But he goes, I'm saying to you, hey, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. Sound familiar? You can underline that. Who are sons of your Father in heaven? It is people who are emblematic of what Christ says. Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. So what he's saying is, I'm asking you to do something that is absolutely countercultural. I'm asking you to do something that absolutely requires the renewal of your mind. I'm asking you to do something that is incredibly sacrificial. I'm asking you to do something that is emblematic of who Christ is in you and ultimately what Christ did himself for you on the cross. And he goes, and this principle helps us be ministers of reconciliation and reminds others that we are sons of our Father in heaven. And then look what he says. For he, meaning God, makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. Now, here's what he means. He goes, oftentimes you'll go through life and you'll see evil people and you'll see good people. And it'll even cause you to question, why is it that good things happen to evil people? And why is it that evil things seem to happen to good people? 
You ever see that in our culture? You wonder why in the world did this happen to them? They were so good. God, it seems like you could have left them forever here on earth because they were such a picture of who you were. And God, then you've got all this evil in the world and, and they, they seem to be in some ways living in luxury and, and they're, they're making a, a great life for themselves and it just seems contrary. But God, why do you reward that? And Jesus clearly said in this passage, he goes, listen, you need to know that that the rain falls on the just and the unjust. So that means the good farmer have crops that are barren and dry. He walks, looks just across the street, and the evil farmer, the corrupt one, the, the cheating one, the one that's known in town as a slanderer, a malicious fool, a sluggard, his farm is bountiful and it's green. And you go, how in the world is this guy getting anything? And God clearly says, listen, while you're on earth, you need to know that there is both rain for the just and the unjust. That everyone's going to experience a variety of things, and you may not understand them. But he says, at the end of the day, your responsibility is to exemplify to others that you are a son of your father. And how do you do that? Instead of wishing that the evil farmer didn't have rain, when you're praying for rain for yourself, go ahead and pray for rain for him too. Yeah, he's your enemy. And yes, he's persecuted you. And he's encouraged you to move your fence off of his property line. And he's been a pain, right? Whatever. He does. But the reality is, is that this is the key here to the text. He says, listen, verse 46, for if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Hey, if you love those who are lovable, he goes, what does that matter? And then he even says this, he goes, don't the tax collectors do the same? I mean, the tax collectors, these evil, malicious men, he goes, they're easy to, it's easy for them to love people who love them. And they don't have a problem doing that. And he goes on, he says, and if you greet, your, greet only your brothers, what, what more are you doing than others? Don't even the Gentiles do the same? He goes, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. He says, you are to set a standard in which God desires for those who know him to set, which is to be a minister of reconciliation. If you're going to be a minister of reconciliation, here's what you need to know. That means that you are a peacemaker. It means that when you have conflict in your life, you don't run from conflict. It also means that you don't create conflict. And that's really the two types of people oftentimes we see in our life. We see people who run from conflict, never want to talk about it. And then we have others who, they seem to create it. Like they enjoy conflict. And if they don't have something going on in their life, they're like, I'm going to go have to create another fire to put out. And there are those types of different people. But here's the deal. Jesus is saying, and I think what Paul is saying, the church of Rome is saying, hey, listen, be a peacemaker. And a peacemaker does a handful of things. One is they keep short accounts. Like they're not looking to avenge themselves. They're looking to give forgiveness because that's what's been bestowed upon them. So they, they keep short accounts, but even more than that, they don't seek out confrontation and they find no joy in conflict. But at the same time, they realize that conflict is always an opportunity to glorify God in unity. And it's always a chance for you to grow a little bit more in your knowledge of who Christ is and your reliance upon him and his spirit's leadership. So conflict is inevitable, isn't it? Wives, today we're celebrating husbands. And you're like, how am I going to celebrate him? We just fought like crazy last night. I don't want to honor him today. He didn't honor me yesterday, right? It's so easy, isn't it, to just begin to stack on and build accounts and 
making these measuring sticks. And Christ goes, hey, listen, there's no peace in that. Be a peacemaker. That means that you hit conflict head on, but you do it in a way that honors Christ, that promotes unity, that builds love, that edifies one another. It's no unwholesome talk among you, but it is, it is knowing that your reward is in heaven when you honor God. Now, let me ask you, dads, what are you teaching your children? Because I don't know about you, but I mean, I have two boys, and there's oftentimes conflict at school. And Cody even mentioned last week, you know, in his message, just that you could have conflict on the playground. I'm like, that's a perfect analogy. Because you, you, you do, you have, you have conflict. And here's the deal, just two, two quick things. There is conflict on the pay, playground, but the playground is oftentimes a great chance for a teacher just to kind of take a deep breath. And so sometimes they're like, I mean, I'm just going to take a little deep breath. And so when they do, they can't necessarily what's happening on the other side of the slide, right? I'm not you know, picking on you teachers, but I'm just saying it's really easy for conflict to happen. Now, look, it's also easy for people who would say that they love God to teach their children to defend themselves and ultimately something else. What are they, what are they taught to defend? Joe Mama, yeah, right? <laughs> defend Joe Mama, right? What else do they... What else do they uh, your name. The thing that we have to really wrestle with as fathers is are we, are we teaching American values that are in conflict to the very words of Jesus? Because Jesus is clearly saying, hey, look, blessed are those who are peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Paul is saying to the church of Rome, hey, repay no one evil for evil. that's a conflict that should in some ways be something that we're settling in our heart. Yes, I get that your dad taught you to protect your name. I get that you feel in some ways that you should do the same. But as we explore the text today, I just encourage you to pick up on the words of Jesus, pick up on the words of Paul. Because in verse 18 of Romans 12, look what Paul says. He says, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. So far as it depends on who? So, hey, guys, I don't know about you, but this is my last message for like three months, okay? So it, it, it would bless me greatly if we ended in a good way. If possible, so far as it depends on you. There we go. Thanks, friend. You encouraged my heart. Uh, if possible, so far as it depends on you. So ultimately, you are the one that is in control. You are to live peaceably with all. And the word peaceably in the Greek literally means peace, harmony, unity. That's the idea. So he goes, if possible. So if you have any opportunity, you should live at peace. If people do something to you, you have a choice. Am I going to respond in like kind? Is it going to be eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth? Or is it going to be the way that Christ carried himself. Who's going to be our example? The old law or the law that's fulfilled, which is the law of Christ? Which one? And you got to decide that. But ultimately, Christ is saying the, the one who is emblematic of who I am and the one who is symbolic of what I do is the one who is the peacemaker. You go, well, why? Well, I think the reason why is because of Ephesians 4.32, what Paul wrote to the church of Ephesus which in that same chapter, as you started out, verses 1 through 6, he's talking all about unity. 
But then as he closes that chapter, that, that idea in the letter, it, it says this in Ephesians 4.32, Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God and Christ forgave you. Why do we keep short accounts? Why do we not revile in return? Because we have been forgiven much. And so forgiven people forgive. Let me say that one more time. Forgiven people forgive. Now, that does bring up a really good question. Is there ever a time where I should take a stand? Is there ever a time where I'm, I'm in conflict and, and I shouldn't just roll over? Because I think that's one of the challenges that people in America tend to maybe have with the person of Jesus. Because I think we could look at Jesus and go, well, he was weak, you know, or you know, maybe, you know, he was, he was just a pushover. You know, he just rolled over. And, and, and I think that's really a challenge. Because I think Jesus, one, uh, as, as far as physical stature, I would probably take him over any other man in this room. No offense. Um, he was a carpenter, he was a hard worker, and his body, and the, even the things he put in his body had prepared him to endure the cat of nine tails, 40 lashes minus one, he survived it. A lot of people didn't. He, he walked the, the trail to Golgotha, survived it, many people wouldn't. He endured the cross, scorned its shame, ultimately submitted himself to, fa- to his father, but he was, he was in physical shape to endure things that you and I probably couldn't. And that's not the point. The point is, Jesus had something else about him that set him apart from most of us. And that was, not that he was weak, but that he was meek. Now, the word meek in the, the scriptures is the word prouse, which it literally means to have power bridled. So think of a, a horse or a wild stallion. Think about him on the range of Montana. And this, this stallion is... Is hard to capture. Uh, you, you get him within pins, and he is hard to, to grab control of. But could you imagine the stallion that over time is trained and subjected to a trainer as he begins to yield himself day in and day out? Eventually, he becomes meek. And what meek is is someone who is yielded to authority, although they possess all the power they've ever had. That's the idea. So when you think about Jesus and even those who uh, spit upon him, plucked his beard, reviled him, Jesus uh, was even questioned, hey, if you're the, the son of God, save yourself. Listen, I just want you to understand that Jesus had all the power to do any of those things. But yet he had subjected himself, one, to the father's authority in his life, but two, yielded himself to self-control, that Jesus was meek, had all the power to do anything he could have, but yet he exemplified self-controlled and he would not do what would not please the Father. Friends, that's the idea. Jesus was not weak. He was meek. He was self-controlled, had all the power that anyone could desire, but yet he bridled it. He was controlled by his Father. That's the desire. It's not that you're to be a weak man. It's not that you're to teach your sons to be weak. I think the goal is is to teach your son's fathers to be strong and to be self-controlled and to be strong-willed and to stand up when the time is right. But the question is, is when do you stand up and what do you stand up for? And I think there's a lot of examples in the Scripture that you could point to. I think in Acts chapter 5, you you have the apostles who uh, were preaching the gospel, were were beaten, and uh, then... Peter and the apostles, after they were arrested, were told, uh, hey, don't, don't preach about the, 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 this guy named Jesus anymore. Don't say his name anymore. And they just stood up and said, we can't do that. 
Like, we, it's impossible for us to do. It's not right for us to say what you would do. We have to do what God says. That's Acts chapter 5. You might remember in the Old Testament, you had several compadres that are famous. You have a guy named Daniel. Uh, Daniel, when captured by Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon, they encouraged the, the people there to eat all of the, the, the king's choice food and wine. And Daniel said, hey, listen, I'm resolving myself not to do that. It would not please God for me to have your king's food. I cannot adapt to the culture in that way. Can I just drink water and eat vegetables? King's servant said, I don't know that we can do that. And the reason why is because you're not going to look like all these other men. And Daniel said, hey, why don't we just test, test it? Let's see. Give me 10 days. But Daniel took a stand. He did, not, he did not cave in to the demands of Nebuchadnezzar and his leadership. Nebuchadnezzar uh, also built in Daniel chapter 3 a statue, 90 foot tall. said, hey, I want you to bow down when you hear the sound of the trumpet. And when you do, bow down and worship me. And Daniel's buddy, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, heard the trumpet. And when the trumpet sounded, guess what? They were still standing. You go, man, that's a lot of conflict with the king. Why? They said, listen, we're not going to bow down. You can do whatever you want to us, but we're not going to bow down. Well, I'll tell you what. We're going to throw you into the fiery furnace. Oh, okay. Well, so be it. Well, what's your God going to do about it then? Well, listen, he's going to save us. But even if he doesn't, he's still God. But that was a place to take a stand. You might even uh, remember in Daniel, another story in, in chapter 6. You've got the Babylonians overthrown by the Persians and the Medes. And you've got a guy named Darius who's now king. And there was an injunction sign. And the injunction was 30 days. And it was that you should not bow down, pray to, or submit yourself to any other god other than King Darius. Daniel knew the injunction was signed. But he decided just as he had done every other day, he went to his house, prayed. His buddies who had conspired to plan against him caught him, go back to Darius and go, Hey, Darius... Uh, your, your boy Daniel is praying to other gods. And Daniel goes, hey, listen, whatever. They throw him into the, the, to a den of lions, and God saves him. But it was a place to take a stand. Um, consider um, Esther when faced with uh, protection of the Jews before the king and, and her and Mordecai having a conversation. Esther just said, and, uh, hey, listen, I'm going to go before the king. And if I perish, I perish. I'm going to take a stand even though women don't approach kings. She did it anyway. In Matthew chapter 2, if you might remember the wise men who subjected themselves to Herod, Herod says, hey, go report back to me when you hear where the baby is found. Did they go back and report to Herod? No. They said, we're not going to do that. We're not going to put ourselves in that place. So is there a time to take a stand? Absolutely. Cody last week mentioned uh, uh, the challenge that Paul had with Cephas and the way that in Galatia chapter 2, Galatians chapter 2, you saw the conflict between Paul and Cephas arise because Cephas was acting one way with the Jews and another way with the Gentiles, and, and Paul took a stand there. So is there time to take a stand? Yes. But the matters of reviling, what does Jesus say? What does Paul say? Hey, don't repay evil for evil. If possible, so far as it depends upon you, live at peace with who? All. Continuing on in Romans chapter 12, verse 19, he says, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Encouraging words, so that if you can live at peace with everyone, what happens when somebody avenges you? What happens when somebody reviles them? What happens when somebody persecutes you or they say harsh things about you? Jesus says, hey, listen, don't give it back. 
he is the ultimate example. Matter of fact, I love the fact that Peter writes about this similar. So if you want to hold your place in Romans chapter 12, we'll be right back to it in a few moments. But look at what Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 18 through 25. And this isn't the context of all that's there. There's more to read, but this is a great place to start. In verse 18, Peter encourages servants to subject themselves to their masters. And he says, and when you subject yourself to your master, do it with all respect. And he goes, not only to the good and to the gentle, but also to the unjust. So he, com- he commissions his people, his audience. He goes, hey, don't just honor the good masters. He goes, even honor the ones who are unjust. And when he uses the word unjust there, it's an interesting word. It's the word scolios. Now it's the word that you and I would get scoliosis from, right? Crooked man. Um, if you are in the King James, and that's the Bible of choice for you, it's, it's the guy uh, that's a froward. If you are reading the New American Standard Bible, it, it may say unreasonable or harsh, depending on what year yours was. But the idea is that Paul says, I'm sorry, that Peter says, is that, hey, you are to subject yourself to people, good ones and bad ones. And he goes, even the crooked man you are to honor. It's interesting because Paul wrote something similar to the church of Philippi. And it's a verse that you'll recognize, and then we'll come back to Peter. Look at this verse. Philippians chapter 2, verses 14 through 16. Paul said to the church of Philippi, Do all things without grumbling or disputing, so that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a scolios world, a crooked world, a twisted, a distorted world. He goes, You are to be different, among whom you shine as lights in the world, a dark world you're to shine out holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ, I may be proud that I did not run or labor in vain. Paul says you are to look different in a crooked world. Friends, what is one practical way you and I could look different? We don't repay evil with evil. We don't revile the way that all of our other friends might revile. Who is our example? Peter says Christ is. Look what Peter continues to say. He, he, he says this in verse 9. He goes, This is a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. He goes, It's a testament of God when you suffer well. Then he gives you two examples. He goes, What credit is it when you sin, you are beaten for it if you endure? He goes, That's natural. You wrong somebody, you're beaten for it. He goes, That's the natural progression. You steal something, you're put in jail, that happens. Because what happens if you do good and you suffer for it and yet you still endure? He goes, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. Friends, that's divine. When you do good and you get a consequence as if you did bad, God says, what? That's divine. Why? He goes, because even, you remember the words of Jesus? Even if you're reviled and you choose not, he goes, your reward is kept where? In heaven. In heaven. So that's a divine thing to do good and suffer for it. And then he gives us the example. He goes, For to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. Jesus was innocent, and yet he did not say, When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. What an incredible example. When he was spit upon, he didn't spit back. When he was slapped and punched, he didn't, he didn't throw, throw up fist. When he was cursed, when he was threatened, he was silent. 
Our example is the meek Savior, which entrusted himself to who? The one who judges justly. It is the idea that we know that vengeance is the Lord's, that there are things that you and I are not meant to carry, but that God will ultimately settle in the last days. Verse 24, he says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. He goes, you're a new creation. You have have a spiritual application. And ultimately, while you suffer here on this earth, there's a final healing that will take place. And you have to long for that day. He says, for you were straying like sheep, but now return to the shepherd, the overseer of your souls. He goes, you used to your way. You used to be on your own. You used to revile and return because this is what wicked people did. You had to defend yourself. But he goes, now you've entrusted yourself to the shepherd and the overseer of your soul. Who is your shepherd? He is the one who defends you with his staff. Who is the shepherd? He is the one who cares for you and will ultimately lead you to greener pastures. And he will lead you to to prosperous and still water. He is the one that you entrust yourself to. He is the one that you allow to do the avenging. He is the one in which is all that you need, which is Paul's point. He goes, listen, you're not to avenge yourself. You should allow God to do that. And then in Romans chapter 12, verse 20, and we'll close with these two verses, he says this in verse 20. He goes, to the contrary, he goes, I want you to do something that is totally upside down in this culture. He goes, if your enemy's hungry... Underline enemy. He didn't say if your neighbor's hungry, if your friend's hungry. He didn't say if the homeless is hungry, feed them. He goes, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. I think there's a couple of different interpretations here. I'll give them both to you, and then I'll tell you where I lean. I think one interpretation, you go, you heap burning coals on his head, meaning that if you do something good, maybe they'll feel guilty, and in turn, they'll, they'll change their ways. That's one interpretation. I think, for me, a better interpretation is that you'll heap burning coals on his head when you look at the scriptures. And I could give you a series of texts, I'll put them for you in the sermon notes, is that if you look over the course of scripture, when you see burning coals, it's typically symbolic of God's anger and his judgment. And so when you heap burning coals on his head, the idea is is that when you do good to others that are evil, it in some ways is bringing judgment upon them, especially if their hearts are not turned. So if you respond the way that Christ desires and they keep upping the ante, then you need to know that God does the avenging. And he goes, and on the contrary, if you feed your enemy or you give water to your enemy, you provide for his needs, and he continues this progression of conflict and up the ante, he goes, just know that every time that you do good, you are heaping on him burning coals on his head. You are showing him a picture of God's grace in a time in which they can't see it and will one day see God's avenging, his anger, and they'll see the lion of the tribe of Judah and it will not go well for them. They'll miss out on the glorious grace. And then he gives this commission. He says, so don't be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And friends, I would just tell you, if that's something that I could leave with you, it would, it would just be that. Hey, do good. Here's the deal. I, I've contemplated and I've even thought, okay, I'm not going to have a chance to speak in front of our church family for another couple of months. 
What would I leave you with? And then I've even thought about this. Like, what's this? What happens if this is the last time? There's a lot of things that happen in life, right? What if this is the last time that I ever said anything? What would I want to leave with you? Like, what would, what would kind of challenge would I leave? And, and I would just say, here's what it is. I, I would say maybe it's twofold. One, my prayer for our church is that you find joy in our other shepherds here. Friends, it, it it would grieve my heart if you thought, oh, you know what? Somebody else is teaching, or I'm going to have to watch a video on the screen for a little while. Hey, listen, don't get ensnared into that foolish trap. Be plugged into the body. Love Christ well. Overcome evil with good. But I would say the other thing I would leave, if like, there was one thing I could implore, like if you never heard my voice again from this stage and this leadership role, it would be this. Live in unity. Hey, pursue unity. Conflict happens in the local church. It's going to. Why? Because it's filled with people. If it surprises you that there are people who have conflict, just look to your left and to your right and be reminded that your spouse is right there next to you, right? Or be reminded that your daughter or your son is right there. Like, we live in conflict. We're people. We're selfish. We're foolish. We're self-seeking Oftentimes, we, we don't gratify the, uh, the desires of the Spirit, but we gratify the desires of our sinful, foolish, fleshly nature. And that happens. But I would just say, hey, if I could implore you with anything, it would be to pursue peace, to be peacemakers, not sweeping stuff under the rug, not desiring conflict for conflict's sake, but that you would live and dwell in unity, that, friends, that you would love your neighbor as yourself that you would forgive as Christ has forgiven you, that you would be like lights in the darkness, that you would shine brightly wherever it is the Lord commissions you to go, and that you would be known as people of peace. And friends, if you don't hear anything else from me, may I help you understand that the bride of Christ is beautiful and we oftentimes make it ugly and oftentimes we, we bring despair and heartache and pain. And oftentimes we want to run from the bride of Christ because of what we think is ugly. But can I just tell you, Christ died for you. He died for your enemy. He died for your neighbor. He desires and wants to promote unity in us and he wants something different than what the world has to offer. And friends, I'm just telling you, the, wor- the world is not worth investing in like the church is. And so if I could implore you to anything, invest in the bride of Christ. Serve her, love her, promote unity in her. And if there's one thing that we could work on in this next year, let alone the next couple of months, it would be this thing. How many times do we not believe the best about one another? How many times do we not keep short accounts? How many times are we easily moved towards anger? And yet here it is, we are to be like Christ. I could grow in that area. Matter of fact, I'll close with a story. Uh, this last week, we were at camp, and uh, we were with a bunch of a bunch of kiddos. And uh, I had one kiddo who he had it out for me, um, and so he uh, he submitted to the camp news, which was the 9 a.m. news, which you know they give some updates about camp. He submitted um, that Pastor Brandon, as he called me, um, is a good dancer, and he would like to have a dance off and challenge somebody. <laughs> So two facts. One, I would never submit myself to do anything like that. Number two, I am a horrible dancer. 
But either way, on day two of camp, I find myself in front of 600 people having to do a dance-off to the most atrocious tune. And I'm like, who in the world did this to me? With All of a sudden, with the beaming you know, face and, I mean, just excitement galore, I have a young man go, hey, just so you know, I'm the one who put you up here. Isn't that awesome? And I'm like, no, it's not awesome. <laughs> and then... I had a dance-off, which I lost. It was atrocious. It was awful. I knew it was going to happen, right? But where did my heart go? Revenge. <laughs> Revenge. And I would, I would tell you all this little dude's name, but that would kind of embarrass him, and it might like be like reviling. Well, his name's Granger Pratchell, okay? So <laughs> if you all know him, you can... So, uh, so when you see Granger, go, hey, man, did, did, give him a high five, okay? Now, listen, here's the deal. I looked at Granger later that afternoon, and I said, hey, dude, better sleep with your eyes open. <laughs> and I started counting, like, that day, like, how many camps have I been to? And I'm like, dude, I've been to 50-plus camps in the last 20 years, and there's, there's not a trick one. So I'm like, okay, dude, am I going to put toothpaste in your ears? Am I going to shave in your hair, cream your face? I'm going to put your hands in hot water so you pee on yourself? Am I, am I going to take Kool-Aid and I, I would get Kool-Aid in your shower so when it turns on, it's all red or blue or purple or pink and you're like disturbed? I'm like, what am I going to do to you? And I'm like, just keep your eyes open. And he's like, seriously? And I'm like, oh, dude, it's going to be bad. Don't worry. <laughs> Listen, isn't that our natural bent? <laughs> it is. It's our natural bent. And that's, that's what I would commission you to. Friends, fight against your natural bent. For those of you that are curious, Granger was spared. He didn't have to endure any harsh things, not even a little small one. But here's the deal. Isn't it that our hearts are prone to go, I'm going to pay you back. And Christ goes, hey, it's not worth it. And it's not, it's not what I desire. Obviously, that's a small example to the more painful examples that we've experienced in life. And I just tell you, blessed are the peacemakers for they shall be called sons of God. May we represent that in all that we do. Let me pray for you, friends. And uh, may you know that I love you and love the bride of Christ and this fellowship and local body here. Father in heaven, thank you for the joy it is to share your word. God, thank you that you love us enough that you would not leave us alone, that we have a suitable helper in the Holy Spirit to teach us and to guide us and to comfort us. Lord, you are our paraclete. You give us all that we need. And we thank you, Lord, that you guide us through your word and that you, Lord, help us to see that we are to be examples like Christ was. When he was spit upon, when he was slapped, when he was rejected, when he was cursed, when he was tempted, he did not respond in a natural way, but Lord, he responded in a supernatural and a divine way. Yes, he was the son of God, but Lord, you were calling us to be like him. And we need your help. Lord, may your spirit guide us to all truth. And Lord, would you help us to love our neighbors the way we desire to be loved? Would you help us to dwell in a spirit of unity? God, would you help us to be a representation of light in a scoliose and crooked world? We need you and your help. But I pray more than anything that the church would be beautiful and that it would please you greatly in the way we respond to difficult and harsh circumstances. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.